standard issue for all women. Hello, Mickey here. Welcome to one of this week's Sunday Chops. Over on the other one, our International Men's Day 2020 series of chats with the men continues as Jen, yeah, that's right, Jen, uh, with the new baby, catches up with the man in the room next door, Mr. Michael Spicer. Have yourselves a lovely listen. This Chops is my full chat with the indomitable Carmen Khalil, mother of Virago Press, writer, publisher, fierce feminist, joyful crone, enraged person and wonderfully difficult woman. Her latest book, Oh Happy Day, Those Times and These Times, is an incredible piece of research and writing, which delves into her ancestors' lives to tell a story of empire, migration and the poverty and injustice of 19th century England, and how that led to her family being in Australia. It is brimming with eloquent rage and truly wonderful. And as the title suggests, and indeed as Carmen and I discuss, those times aren't so different from these times for a lot of people living in poverty in modern Britain. I'm really lucky that my job means I talk to a lot of truly excellent women. May I coin a collective noun? I'm gonna. A blaze of excellent women, if you will. And while it's hugely unprofessional to go into an interview hoping to be friends with someone, you can absolutely come out of one wishing time with that person had been longer and spent over a bottle of wine. What I'm saying is, Carmen, if you are listening, let's hang out, yeah? I, uh, I've, I've probably made this weird. Anyway, in for a penny, in for a pound. I full on love her. And I'm sure having listened to this, you will too. Carmen, hello. Hello. Thank you so much for joining me. I'd like to start by thanking you for a lot of the astonishing books written by women that line my bookshelves. You founded Virago Press in 1973. Could you tell us why and how Virago came about? I actually began in 1972, just after I'd finished working on Ink. Ink was an underground newspaper, you know, meant to be as an alternative to the Fleet Street Press we had then and the absolutely delicious press we have now. Uh, it was meant to be present another vision, uh-huh. an alternative vision. But unfortunately, Richard Neville, one of the founders, was arrested for obscenity for the Oz trial. And so the trial came on at the same time, so Ink faded. But on Ink, I met many women who were the feminists I first started work with. Um, Marsha Rowe, Anna Coote, people like that. Mm-hmm. Anna Coote wrote Sweet Freedom with Beatrix Campbell. I mean, I don't suppose people know of these people anymore because it's such a long time ago. Anyway, Marsha went on to start Spare Rib yes. with Rosie, Rosie Boycott. And I decided if they could do it for magazines, I could do it for books. And that's when I got the idea in 72 but I I formed the company in 72 because I always wanted it to be a women's business you know that would survive I didn't want any more of those things that were in start and stop which they have over the centuries Mm -hmm. and I have to say that's probably the one thing I've achieved with Farago it hasn't folded yet yeah so like that that's very true at the time did it feel as momentous as it went on to be it's a p- peculiar story, and I, everybody wants me to write my memoirs, and I probably now shall. What I absolutely loved doing, it wasn't torment to me at all. What was often torment to me was the disapproval I received from my fellow feminists, because I wasn't English, you see, and that was a drawback, frightful drawback. I was a very sort of typical Australian. You know, I always say what I think, and I've got a foul trucker's mouth, and... I wasn't raised to think you couldn't yell at people. You know, I wasn't just wasn't raised like an English person. Uh And that caused a lot of trouble with the serious sisters. 
And when I look back on it now, I regret that I wasn't perfect, but actually they weren't either. No, no, you know what is. I mean? Yeah. No, <laughs> perfect doesn't get things done, I don't think. I think that's what we do. As I've got very old, I do now see that really what I was, as well as being a feminist and a, I'm an incredibly well read person because of my father and my mother. I was a business entrepreneur. You know, I could make a business happen, which women can do, you see. Yes, but I suppose, I mean, the 1970s, that was starting to be accepted and there was that huge second wave feminism happening. But it still felt out of the ordinary for a woman to set up something like a publishing company. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you want to go into that at any time, go to the British Library where my archive is. I think I got the worst press in the world. Let me see if I can think of anybody who got worse press than me. Prince Andrew. (laughs) (laughs) He's always in the newspapers. What are you on about? (laughs) But he gets a terrible coverage, doesn't he? That is true. That is true. As he will soon. Yes, absolutely. But in fact, you were mentioned on our podcast via the British Library just last week because I went to their new exhibition and was very excited that they've got your archives. Yes, they have. And also, I didn't put any bars on the archive. I wanted everybody to be able to read and know how difficult it was, how easy it was, what fun we had, what rows we had, how awful some of the people were. You know, in other words, the human race in Virago. Yeah. I think they have to keep a few bits back because they've got rules and the government's got rules, but I don't have any rules. You can read the whole lot as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) There's a line in your acknowledgements for Oh Happy Day, which we're going to talk about in a second, that really struck me. You mention your debt to Angela Carter and you say, Angie and I shared a fine rage. Rage is uncomfortable to live with, but it does give you an inquiring mind and an objecting spirit. And rage is still seen as a most unwomanly emotion, which is, of course, bullshit. Yeah, I'm glad you read. That's a marvellous question for me. Because I am an enraged person, there's no question. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's in every page of my book, isn't it? Why do people put up with all this? You know, that sort of thing. So it's a lovely question. Well, Angie, you see, I wasn't raised in a, in any way that would suit me to live in England. There's no question about that. But um, I knew nothing about English politics. I knew about the Tudors, and we, we were taught English history, and we taught... We were taught that England won the war, which was a complete load of cods. But um, we weren't taught anything about its alternative history, its other history. We taught nothing uh, about what faced me when I came to England. So when I met Angie, whom I, uh, I did the publicity for one of her books before I started my own publishing company, and then I published her at Virago and at Chatter and Windows. She was a deeply deeply political woman and very funny with it and hilariously enraged I mean but not enraged so she was going to bash you over the head with a crowbar (laughs) but her tongue on the subject so she taught me more or less everything I knew about English politics and I suppose I've slavishly followed her opinions really but I've made my own mind up didn't agree with about everything you had a higher brow than I had about literature that rage though I think We talked earlier about the fact that being perfect doesn't get stuff done, but channeling rage, I think, is an incredible way to affect change. Yes. Do you think that they're more accepting of women being furious now than they used to be? I think they would tell us they are, but in reality, probably not. Hmm. Hmm. 
Because it's, it's, it's mm. so close to being hysterical, isn't it, Carmen? If you're angry, your womb's probably wandered. Mm. The womb has wandered. That's a good, good phrase. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, I've still got things to think about, haven't I, even though I'm an old crone? <laughs> oh, I've skipped middle age and gone straight to crone. I truly believe it's the best out of those three. Absolutely. <laughs> Liz Calder, the publisher, and I, who were great and old, old, old friends, we started a, a movement that we called crones, and we had we held sticks up, you know, walking sticks up. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't last long. We got we had we got too busy, but the crone movement was a good movement. Oh, let's restart it. I'm all for that. <laughs> Start a crone department on standard issues. A crone department. I think we just days. are. The, I think we just are the crone department, though. I think we just are. <laughs> Let's talk about your latest book, Oh Happy Day, Those Times and These Times. So to put it in incredibly simple terms, it's the story of your British ancestors. But in reality, it is, it's a hugely impressive piece of work, impeccably researched, mammoth in scope, and a real eye-opener, I think, to British history. It feels, reading it, like this is something that you had to write, that you, it was a force of nature. It feels like you really had to write it. Is that the case? It wasn't what I intended to write, but um, I mean, two things impelled me, Mickey. One was um, I was going to write my memoirs, which I've had a contract for for years, <laughs> decades, is not right. but I wasn't going to do it really. Anyway, um, <laughs> when Australia got that Prime Minister called John Howard and he started putting boat people and refugees into camps and islands and prisons, really, and treating them like Dirt, just like the the tragic people who died in the Channel this week. Yeah, I thought, who the hell does he think he's descended from? You know, I started out thinking, I'm going to tell them where we all came from, and I pretty much I didn't know I came from the scum of the earth. No, no, I knew nothing about any of my ancestors before I wrote that book and did the research. But once I did the research, it was perfectly clear I do come from the scum of the earth, <laughs> and I bet John Howard does too. Anyway, moving on from that, then we move on to the financial crash of 2008. And after that, George Osborne brought in austerity, and then I really flipped. You see, Angie wasn't alive to be enraged on my behalf. It was just simply a mortal sin as far as I was concerned to make... Agree. The ordinary people of this country, including you know, people of this country, pay for what big business, financiers, globalization, international capitalism, all that stuff had inflicted on the, 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 the economies of the world. And why should ordinary people pay? I just worry that by bailing the banks out, we're going to create a culture of dependency, which is what we get told when anyone with human suffering tries to access the state. Absolutely. There's no idea that the state exists um, with responsibility to its people. No. Its responsibility is to business, international globalization and great affairs, and all their wealth will trickle down. The trickle is something I've never seen. It's supposed, you know, people like Ian Duncan Smith thinks, think wealth trickles down from great wealth trickles down, but as far as I can see, it trickled into great bonuses for bank managers. Yeah. And anyway, I don't think anybody should have to live in a society where people are hungry and go to food banks. I mean, it feels it feels ridiculous that that should be a statement that would have anyone arguing with it. Well, we do. Yeah. We do. 
I mean, somebody stood up in Parliament last week, I think, and said it creates a state of dependency. But if you feed the children, yeah, I wonder how his own dependencies are. I bet they they won't go into what his dependencies <laughs> might be. So a lot of it reads like a horror story. I've got to be honest with you. I know. <laughs> and you paint this vivid, bleak picture of life for paupers and the labouring poor in late 18th early 19th century Britain you can really feel that rage we were talking about within every page and the descriptions of this barbaric life led by so many including your ancestors was it a really emotional writing process no (laughs) I just I, I mean I don't it really wasn't I don't think anyone raised in the centuries we've been the century I've been raised in can not be capable of contemplating horror think what the Nazis did to the Jews think what the Germans did to millions of Europeans in those labour camps which no one has ever written enough about think about how the British treated their peoples in the lands they invaded and acquired for their empire so no it didn't horrify me what horrified me was that history could repeat itself and that People who go, like George Osborne, for example, there's my dog, she wants to come in. (laughs) My cat's doing the same at the door. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's horrifying that somebody like George Osborne, David Cameron, much worse, of course, are others that we have now. I think, you know, David Cameron was quite a, a mild sort of creature generally, not of great brain, but not a man of great brain. George Osborne was more intelligent, but, um, why didn't they understand what what is stopped some part of their education so that they don't see how other people live do you think it's a willful ignorance or do you think it's a lack of intelligence do you know somebody you should have on your podcast but i don't think you should do it is sasha swire who wrote the the diary of an mp's wife when she revealed everything about the cameron years have you heard about it no diary of an mp's wife it is unbelievable it is hilarious. It's not badly written. And at the end of it, all my friends have read it. And I sent an email to one and I said, here is, because Sasha Soir was the daughter of an M, M, of um, Sir John Knott, who was Margaret Thatcher's bloke when we conquered the Falklands or whatever we did to the Falklands, you remember. Mm-hmm. So he was a politician. Her husband was a politician. He mixed only with politicians. She's the one who should have been the politician. So you, here you had the most brilliant example of feminism, you know, where feminism should have got in and said, excuse me, Sasha, do you mind taking over the country at least <laughs> and pissing at all those, sending all those men out to the pasture? She would have been an incredible minister of this and that. But you see, what happens to women happens without respect of class or party. Yes, agreed, agreed. But I, so- I strongly recommend that you have her on your programme if she'd do it. Well, I shall, one, read the book and two, see if we can get her on. Well, she's very, very conservative. We did a documentary on Margaret Thatcher for what would have been 40 years since she got in as Prime Minister. Mm. And I spoke to Edwina Curry and it was one of the oddest interviews I've ever done because she would just say stuff to me and then go, right, and like expect me to agree. And Hannah, bless her, edited it. And she said, Edwina would say, don't you agree? And there would be silence from my end of the line. And then I'd go, anyway, and just ask another question. Because no, no, I don't agree. Why didn't you say to me that you didn't agree? 
she was just saying how amazing Thatcher was for everyone basically that that's that love for her was still there and it was it was interesting to hear and we definitely wanted to get that side as well well I think that I thought the BBC did a very good four-part documentary on her life it was very clear what was wrong with her at the end of it also very clear Mickey that those men were no better to her than they needed to be that was very clear Mm. but also she had a complete lack of empathy almost as if she was on a spectrum she thought because she'd done it anybody could do it whereas I don't think anybody could have started Virago I don't doesn't mean to say I was perfect at it which I wasn't but um, people have different qualities she didn't understand that Let's go back to Oh Happy Day. Now, when you said it was full of horror, it's not just full of horror. It's also full of irony. (laughs) It's got a love story in the middle of it. Oh, my God, it's so romantic. And that's, like, one of my questions is, like, amidst all this horror, it's one of the most romantic stories of George Conquest and Sari Lacey being pulled apart and then coming together and getting married in their 60s. Absolutely. I want someone to make a TV programme and leave out all my rage and just tell the story. (laughs) What about the Hulks, Nikki? Did you know about the Hulks? Oh, the Hulks. I knew a little bit about the Hulks. So I guess it's worth pointing out, like, some of the stuff that you cover, like the poor law and corn law and the the lives of stockingers. I'm from Manchester, so it was more about the mill towns that we learned. I absolutely learned in my history lessons at school, but Empire didn't come with a serving of the injustice that obviously was the bedrock of it. But I had I'd read about the the hulks that they kept all the convicts on. The horror of them. I think I've never read it captured as well. I could almost smell it in the way that you describe it. Yeah, and it's it was just horrific. The other thing, Mickey, that I really want anybody who buys the book to read to understand is that what happened was that the abolition of the slave trade began at the end of the 18th century. So let's just take 1800. It was about 1803 that began. So all the shipping magnates who'd shipped slaves and made their money moved seamlessly in the next 30 years, because it didn't become law until 33-34, into transporting convicts, but Mm -hmm. also to manning these hulks all along the southern coast of England. They weren't just in Woolwich. They were in Oh, Sheerness, everybody, everywhere, along along the, the estuary of the Thames and along the south coast. And that's how they treated their own people, just like they treated the slaves. And that's why I think when you hear people talking about Black Lives Matter, and sometimes I think you've got to understand that it's a matter of class as well as colour. Absolutely. Because the suffering of the people of this country up to, the, up to about 1945 is simply unbelievable. You see, when they sent the um, soldiers to the First World War, they found those on high, those who ruled those blue, that many of the men had scurvy and bandy legs and they couldn't fight. And that was the beginning of when they began to think we must feed our working class well because otherwise they won't be good soldiers. So, I mean, it's centuries of treatment like this and I just cannot understand why the English don't revolt, but what can I do? Write my book. Well, that definitely, because it seems that the parallels that you draw, that that almost straight line between then and now, it seems that it is the same as it ever was when it comes to oppression of, quote unquote, the undeserving poor. 
and that Britain is, to use common parlance, very much on the wrong side of history, yet very few people are acknowledging it. Very few. And I think you find that those who do are like me, enraged, because so many centuries of the people not taking any notice of how badly they're treated continues. I mean, in the last election, for example, fancy voting for people whose interest... I mean, I, I, you know, I don't think the choice was great, let's put it like that, but... Um, <laughs> It's an extraordinary thing not to see that being ruled century after century by an elite does no good to your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, your great-great-grandchildren. They're going to, never going to move in this country until they understand the, the basis of the flaws of the democracy that is supposed to rule us so well, the flaws inherent in the class system of it in particular. I wanted to ask you on that note, actually, because obviously one thing that has changed is access to education. And there's no doubt that being able to read and write was very powerful for George, who we follow in Oh Happy Day. And so do you think that people in the future, looking back on our generation, will have access to literature written by people who would be classed as the undeserving poor, which will make them see us as more than numbers like not just numbers do you think there will be any lessons learned I guess is what I'm asking I don't really think that there's much sign of it at the moment because what the other problem about living in this country is it's newspapers and it's media you know I love newspapers as much as anybody else and my best friends are journalists but the ownership of newspapers in this country has meant that the news is always filtered through a, a very strange a strange pair of spectacles that doesn't seem to do an enormous amount of good to the people who buy the newspapers that dish out this drivel. And I'm giving, for example, the Daily Mail, the Daily Express, the Daily Telegraph, and the others can be just as irritating. I mean, I, I, I despair of Fleet Street at the moment. I thought one of the best things that happened that might have broken through was hacked off. But hacked off, the Tory government cancelled the Leveson inquiry into the, both the ownership of the press and the corruption of the press. So what you've got is sort of an elite government supported by a very elitist newspaper and media outlet. I mean, Murdoch. Huh. Um, did you watch the Murdoch, the BBC Murdoch three-part documentary? I have not seen it. Will it change my mind about him? No, it, it would explain to you how they how he influenced the last three governments and Brexit. It's a brilliant documentary. Brilliant. Anyway, I'm getting muddled. What, what was I up to? Do you think we'll learn any lessons? I see no sign of it, no. I think I've given up on England, really. It needs a revolution, but the people are never going to do it. And by a revolution, I don't mean killing anybody. I just mean saying, enough. Why, why do we put up with this idea that members of the upper classes, the Tory party, an elite educated body of persons, uh, decade after decade, the right people to govern this country. Why is that? Do you think it's partly because the people who would need to have that impetus to do the revolution, to make the revolution, are so tied down and mired down in just getting by on a day-to-day level that they don't have the energy to fight the politics that keeps them in that place. It's also that sort of whole aura in this country of looking up to your betters, mm. something I was not raised to do, you know. I was never raised to think the Queen 
you know, needed all the money she had and she's got. What I don't understand that sort of structure of life where some, it's absolutely lovely, according to English people, that the Queen lives in about seven castles and has seven million, you know, I don't know the exact sum. And also, I don't think they're bad people by any means, actually. Much worse politicians than the Queen and uh, Prince Philip. But the injustice of it is something that doesn't seem to strike people, whereas it does strike me. And I mean, I just don't think they agree with me. You know, so I, I really don't think I should stay in this country, actually. I think I'll be expelled after my book is read. <laughs> <laughs> Where would you go? France, I think. Food's better. Every country's got its problems, but at least I couldn't understand all the news, even though my French is adequate. <laughs> Give yourself a little break from it. Give myself a break from Trump and, and the royal family, yeah. So one of my favourite quotes from Carmen Khalil is, the power of a well-told story has been one of the great human resources since the beginning of time. And I couldn't agree with you more. So I wondered, what have you been reading recently? One, that's one of the good things about this period. A lot of my friends have just written books. You know, again, they always do. <laughs> and um, I've just read, there's a writer called Anthony Quinn, and he writes absolutely wonderful novels that are stories it absolutely encapsulates that I've just read his latest one which is not going to be published until next year but if you want to start with Anthony Quinn he wrote one about called Half the Sky which was actually about women and feminism and suffragists and cricket as I recall I think that's right and then another one is Curtain Call but this one is London comma Burning and it's the last decade just before Thatcher takes over. But they tell stories all the time, so that's divine. And then I also read Philip Sands' book on um, the capture of the law of a, of a how the how the Vatican. What was Philip Sands' book called? Marvelous. His last one was East West. I've forgotten the name of the new one, but it's about a German war criminal and how the Vatican and the um, CIA after the war cooperated to get an enormous number of these German war criminals and French war criminals too, by the way, free and um, out to South America. And what what was like to be a sort of German war criminal, which this man was, and what the children think, you know. That's Philip Sands, who's a very famous lawyer and writer. Then I've just read Juliet Nicholson's book about 1962, which is the year we all nearly froze to death. <laughs> Very good to read. Uh, you know, 1962, how old were you? I wasn't born till 1977. So... You what? I, I'm I'm only 43. <laughs> I'm only 43. Uh, so, yeah, it's the grey hair. <laughs> no, when did you go grey? Oh, like when I was 16 it started, but I grew it out in the pandemic. So this is six months worth of silver. interesting? It's been an interesting process. It's affected me more than I thought it would. When did you go grey? I was about 45, I think. And I, I gradually went, you can see it in the photographs that one took photographs to and they said, and I tried to dye it. And I, they took a photograph of me at one of my a launch party with one of my authors. And I had a great patch at the end, <laughs> the middle, which was great. That's it. I'm not doing it anymore. Because all my friends paid £200, a week, you know, every night. And I no way I'd do that. I'd spend money on other things, but not giving, not having my hair dyed. Yeah. So I didn't go grey when I was about fifty. Yeah, I, I started to look a bit like I was wearing a hair hat when I got that line, you know, <laughs> just 
wasn't a good look. So yeah, decided to to embrace it. So when are we starting this revolution? Well, if if you get to the end of my book, I mean, one of the reasons I wrote the book is I want them. When I started Virago, I was absolutely determined to change the national curriculum because I was so fed up with the, the national curriculum when I was young that every single book was by a man. And this, you read Jane Eyre or Jane Austen, not another soul. Virginia Woolf was well beyond our brow as young children. That was considered when we were school children. And I knew there was another whole raft of women writing that school kids should read as well. Mm-hmm. So that's I think that's that's been achieved. I think women writers are taught on the curriculum now. That's what I'd like my I would like the national curriculum to be changed so that the English came to see what they had done brilliantly and they've done so many brilliant things, but also to accept the truth about the state of their nation, which is basically the empire also included terrible pain and suffering to millions and millions of people. Not just black people, but black people, you know, black lives matter most. No question, because there were so many more of them. But also to their own white population. And I'd like them to be taught that and that they continue to have that attitude to those who aren't capable of earning a million pounds in the city. I always exaggerate, but you know what I mean. When I say not capable, they're not given the education or the opportunity. Exactly. That's what I'd like my book to achieve. And also, I don't think it's only grim. I think some of it's quite encouraging to people to know what people put up with before. History teaches you so much, doesn't it? Yeah, and it's it's dangerous to just present this myopic view of empire. Yeah, exactly. And the Second World War is the same thing. It's time we realised, or that they were taught, that the, the attitude and approach and fighting of the English in both wars was phenomenal and great but they didn't win the war they won the war with I'm afraid Russia and America particularly with Russia and if they don't like communism which is absolutely fair enough why should they they can still be taught correct history yeah. do you see what I mean oh absolutely and it's as soon as an idea or people posit that the curriculum should be changed you get people like Michael Gove saying no Michael Gove I know I don't think Michael Gove I wonder what's. I don't know how to get Britbox. I'd like to have seen his spitting image thing. There used to be one of Ronald Reagan in spitting image, where Ronald Reagan took out the top of his head, and a pea came out. I think that's what they should do with Michael. <laughs> <laughs> Take off the top of his head, and a pea would come out. And he put the pea on the ground next to his bed because he was in bed with Nancy at the time. <laughs> Isn't it weird looking back? Because I love spitting image. It was. I was a little bit young for it, but I'd like it stayed yeah. with me. But who would have thought that we'd look back at grey John Major and he was one of the best prime ministers we've had? ever had. I so agree. But he comes from more working class stock and I think that makes a massive difference. That's a good point. I hadn't thought of that. He certainly has. And also, I never thought David Cameron was anything like as poisonous as George Osborne. But I could be wrong. I don't think he was. I certainly don't know. You can sort of get a sense of persons, can't you? I don't know. You see, I'll tell you another thing. I'm telling you whether you like it or not, you poor thing. <laughs> that I do not understand why the Labour Party, the Liberal Party, the Green Party and independence and any other party can't make a coalition, not for their own sakes, but for the sake of the people they want to represent. That, 
really irritates me more than George Osborne or Michael Gove. It's almost it's almost like the power's more important than to them it, than the cause. It, the power is more important than the people they're representing. I'd like to knock their heads together. I'd like you to knock their heads together. Can we make this happen? You're younger than I am and more upright. <laughs> Keep at it, Mickey. Carmen, thank you so, so much for chatting to me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Oh Happy Day is published by Jonathan Cape and available from all good bookshops and comes with a massive standard issue recommendation. It's, it's the history we should be taught at school. So thank you for writing it. Thank you. And that's exactly what I wanted to do when I started writing the book, for it to be taught in schools. Thank you. And I'll be listening. I'll always be listening to your podcast. Oh, thank you. Standard Issue for All Women.